0: Good evening. In this talk, I'd like to tell you about my pioneering equation, the most beautiful theorem in mathematics. But first, let me introduce myself, Leonard Euler. I was born in Switzerland, but spent many years in the imperial courts of St. Petersburg and Berlin. Having published over 800 books and papers in over 70 volumes, I've been called the most prolific mathematician of all time. Ranging across almost all branches of mathematics and physics at the time, these amounted to about one-third of all the maths and physics publications of the 18th century. So why is it the most beautiful theorem in mathematics? Well, this comes from when my equation topped a pole run by the mathematical intelligen- intelligencer, an American mathematics magazine. But such polls aren't restricted to mathematicians. A similar poll for the greatest equation ever was taken by physics world, with my equation appearing in the top two and way ahead of such equations as Einstein's E equals Mc squared and Newton's Laws of Motion. Other people have been equally impressed. Indeed, when only 14, the future Nobel Prize-winning physicist. Richard Feynman called my equation the most remarkable formula in math. While Fields Medal winner Sir Michael Atiyah has described it as the mathematical equivalent of Hamlet's to be or not to be, very succinct, but at the same time, very deep. And the mathematical popularizer Keith Devlin, waxed even more eloquent, saying, like a Shakespearean sonnet that, covers, that captures the very essence of love, or a painting that brings out the beauty of the human forms is far, far more than just skin deep, Euler's equation, my equation, reaches down into the very depths of existence. It even featured in two episodes of The Simpsons and was crucial in a criminal court case when an American physics graduate student was sent- sentenced to eight years in prison after vandalizing 100 luxury sports cars by spray-painting slogans onto them. He was identified after spraying my equation, which had just popped into his head, onto a Mitsubishi Montero, whatever that is. And as he announced at his trial, I've known Euler's equation since I was five. Everyone should know Euler's equation. So what is this result of mine that everyone should know? My equation is important because it combines five of the most important constants in mathematics. One the basis of our counting system, zero, the number that expresses nothingness, pi, the basis of circle measurement, e, the number linked to exponential growth, and i, an imaginary number, the square root of minus one. It also involves the fundamental mathematical operations of addition, multiplication, and taking powers. So if we take e and raise it to the power i times pi, and then add one, we get zero, or equivalently, e to the i pi is minus one. And as one participant in the Physics World Polls moved to remark, what could be more mystical than an imaginary number interacting with real numbers to produce nothing? (laughs) And the numbers have even featured in a nursery rhyme. Leonard Euler had a farm, (laughs) E-I-E-I-0, and on that farm he had one pig, E, I, E, I, zero. As you'll we'll see, my equation is a special case of a more general result that I published in 1748. This celebrated result relates the exponential function and the trigonometric functions cos x and sin x. But why should the exponential function e to the x, which goes shooting off to infinity as x becomes large, have anything to do with these trig functions which forever oscillate between the values 1 and minus 1? Indeed, there's no real reason why there should be such a relationship, but there are complex reasons. Introducing the complex number i leads to such connections and realizing this was one of my gracious achievements. And my result has even appeared on a Swiss postage stamp where it appears up the left-hand side. Although my results may seem rather abstract, they're also of fundamental importance to physicists and engineers. This is because exponentials of the form E to the KT describe things that grow if K is greater than zero or decay if K is negative. Well, those of the form E to the ikt describe circular motion. But by my identity, E to the ikt is made up from cos KT and sine KT and therefore can be used to represent things that oscillate. For example, E to the I omega T refers to an alternating electric current with angular frequency omega. Mathematically, these imaginary exponentials are much easier to deal with than cosines and sines. And indeed, for more advanced topics, such as quantum mechanics and image processing, many calculations cannot be carried out without them. But today, I'm going to introduce the five constants one at a time before showing you how to combine them into what we've called my equation. So let's start with one, the basis of our counting system. It's been said that there are three types of, ma- three types of people, those that can count and those that can't. <laughs> but how do we count? We use a decimal system using only the ten digits 1 to 9 and 0. But it's also a place value system because the placing of each number determines its value. For example, the number 5157 five, means 5,000, 100, 5 tens, and 7 ones. Or if you like, 5 times 10 cubed plus 1 times 10 squared plus 5 times 10 to the 1 plus 7. And here, the number 5 plays two different roles depending on its position. as 5,000s and as 5,10s. And the advantage of such a place value system is that we can carry out our number calculations column by column. Another example is a binary system used in computing, which is based on two rather than ten. It's been said that there are ten types of people those that can count in binary and those that can't. So a binary number such as one, one, zero, one means one lot of two cubed plus one lot of two squared, no lots of two to the one, and one unit, corresponding to our decimal number 13. In fact, it's as easy as one, ten, eleven. So how did our counting systems arise? How did early civilizations count? Let's look at some. Around 1800 BC, the Egyptians, who wrote on papyrus, used a decimal system, but it wasn't a place value system because they used different symbols for 1, 10, 100, and so on, repeating them as often as necessary. So the number below, reading from right to left, is two lotus flowers, six coiled ropes, five heel bones, and eight rods, or 2,658. And around the same time, the Mesopotamians, or Babylonians, were imprinting their numbers on clay tablets. They used a place value system, but it was based on 60, not on 10, a method of counting that survives in our measurement of time, 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes in an hour. And using a vertical symbol for 1 and a horizontal one for 10, the number 1, 12, 37 shown here represents 1 lot of 60 squared plus 12 lots of 60 plus 37 units, which add up to our decimal number 4,357. <laughs> Moving forward by over 1,000 years takes us to classical Greece and Rome. We're all familiar with Roman numerals, a decimal system that uses letters to represent numbers, but it's not a place value system because different letters are used for one, 10, 100, and 1,000, and also for five, 50, and 500. Because calculating with these letters is difficult, uh, they used a the counting ball or abacus for their calculations. The Greek system seems even more confusing. It's also a decimal system But again, it's not a place value system because they use different Greek letters from the units from 1 to 9, tens from 10 to 90, and the hundreds from 100 to 900. So a number like 888 would be written as 800 plus 80 plus 8, or omega pi eta. Meanwhile, in China, they use counting boards for their arithmetic, placing small bamboo rods into separate compartments for units, tens, hundreds, and so on. This was a decimal place value system, one of the first. And notice that each number comes in two forms, vertical and horizontal, which alternate. So 1713 is a horizontal one, a vertical seven, another horizontal one, And a vertical three. They're alternating horizontal and vertical. And notice too for the number 6036, the zero gives us an empty box, and the two forms of six are different. A different method of counting was used for the calendar calculations of the Mayans of Mexico and Central America. These survive in a small number of codices drawn on tree tree bark and then fold it. And here, counting was mainly based on 20, combining dots and lines to give all the numbers from 1 to 19, as you see on the left. And for larger, number, they, larger numbers, they piled these numbers on top of each other. So in the middle, you can see 12 20s plus 30, corresponding to our number 273. A rather attractive feature of their counting was that each number also had a pictorial head form like the ones at the bottom. And notice that they also had a symbol for zero, the shell or eye-like symbol at the bottom. So this leads us to our second number, zero. In India, King Asoka became the first Buddhist monarch around 250 BC, and his edicts were carved on pillars around the kingdom. Some of these contains early examples of Indian base 10 numerals as a decimal place value system began to emerge using only the numbers 1 to 9 and later 0. So how did 0 arise? We've seen how the Chinese left a space in their counting boards while other civilizations used spaces in the sand to distinguish a number like 305 from 35. But gradually special symbols began to emerge. Here above is a cave in Gwalior in India where the number 270, ringed in blue, is clearly seen on the wall. But there was great excitement last autumn when some birch bark was found in the Bodleian Library in Oxford that had been undiscovered for over a hundred years, you can see it below. And it had hundreds of blobs on on it, each representing zero, like the one you can see arrowed. And amazingly, it predated all other known appearances of zero by hundreds of years. Notice how zero plays two roles. As a placeholder, as we've seen, and also as a number to calculate with. Both positive and negative numbers were already used in money transactions for profits and debts. And around the year 600, rules for calculating with, them, calculating with them were given by the Indian mathematician Brahma Gupta. Here are some examples. Adding zero and a negative number gives a negative number. A negative number taken from zero gives a positive one, and so on. Of all these rules, the only meaningless one was his last one, relating to division by zero. Division by zero is forbidden because if you have an equation like four times zero equals nine times zero, if you can calculate the zero, that will tell you that four is equal to nine, which is nonsense, and that works for any two numbers you like. This table we've got here shows how our number systems developed over the centuries, leading to the numerals at the bottom, which are clearly recognizable to us. But also developing at uh, this time, on the right, you can see the Arabic numerals, which are still used in the Middle East. But it took very many centuries for what we now call the Hindu-Arabic numerals to become fully established. Here on the left is a 16th-century picture representing arithmetic, which contrasts a modern Algarist with his Hindu-Arabic numerals and the old-fashioned Abbasist with his counting board. Meanwhile, arithmetic books to promote the Hindu-Arabic numerals were published by a number of people. Fibonacci you may have come across, Luca Pacioli and Robert Record. And on the right is a drawing from Pacioli's Summa of 1494 that shows you how how to calculate on your fingers. Let's now turn to our third number, pi, which arises in two ways. As the ratio of the circumference of a circle to its diameter, pi is c over d, so c is pi d or 2 pi r, where r is the radius. And the point is that this ratio of pi is the same for circles of any size from a pizza to the moon. But it's also the ratio of the area of a circle to the square of its radius. Pi is a over r squared, or a is pi r squared. And this ratio is also the same for all circles, as Euclid proved in the third century BC. We can never write down pi exactly. Its decimal expansion goes on forever. But if the six figures I gave you earlier weren't enough for you, here are a few more. And if you happen to live in the Karlplatz area of Vienna, and you've happened to have forgotten these digits, don't worry, your local metro stop has most of them written down. But if that's not enough for you, here are a few more. But the point is we can never write out pi in full. Although pi has actually been memorized to over 100,000 decimal places, what a way to spend a life. and calculated to only 20 trillion places, even that's only a beginning. There's still a long, long way to go. But here are some ways of remembering the first few digits. In the request, may I have a large container of coffee? The number of letters in each word spell out the first eight digits. Three, one, four, one, five, nine, two, six. And if you want more, then from the second sentence we get 14 decimal places. How I need a drink, alcoholic, of course, after all these lectures informing Gresham audiences. (laughs) And below there's even one in Greek which gives us 22 decimal places. When did people start to measure circles? Several early civilizations needed estimates for the circumference or area. And although they had no conception of pi as a number, their results do yield approximations to its value. A Mesopotamian clay tablet, which survives, relates the perimeter of a regular hexagon to the circumference of the surrounding circle. And this uh, ratio is the sexagesimal number 05736. Now, if the radius is R, then each of the side of the hexagon is also R. There are six equilateral triangles here. And so this ratio um, of 6R over 2 pi R, or 3 over pi, is 57 over 60 plus 36 over 3600. That's what that number means. And after some calculation, this gives us pi is 3 and 1 8 or 3.125 in decimals. A lower estimate, but it's within 1% of its true value. And around the same time, an Egyptian papyrus asked the following question. Given a round field of diameter 9 ket, that's the unit of length, what is its area? And the answer is given in steps. Take away 1 ninth of the diameter, which is 1. The remainder is 8. Multiply 8 times 8 it makes 64. Therefore, it contains 64 ct of land. So the area is 64. So to find the area, they reduced the diameter by 1 ninth and squared the result. This method was probably found by experience. In terms of the ratio, the area turns out to be 256 over 81 r squared, so that pi is about... 256 over 81, which is about 3.160, an upper estimate that's also within 1% of the true value. So there were some good values known even 4,000 years ago. A very convenient but much less accurate value appeared about 1,000 years later in the Old Testament. In 1 Kings and 2 Corinthians, we learn that Hiram, a worker in bronze, made a molten sea with diameter 10 cubits and circumference 30 cubits, giving pi equals 3. But a better, better method of finding pi was introduced by the Greeks and would be used for almost 2,000 years. Often attributed to, to Archimedes, it actually dates back to the 5th century BC when the Greek Sophists Antiphon and Bryson, approximated a circle by regular polygons and tried to get better and, bestru- better, pro- uh, better and better estimates by repeatedly doubling the number of sides until the polygons eventually became the circle. So Antiphon began with a square inside a unit circle and found its area to be 2. So pi is greater than 2. He then doubled the number of sides to an octagon with area 2 root 2 or 2.828. Bryson's approach was similar, except that he also considered polygons outside the circle, giving upper bounds of 4 for the square and 3.32 for the octagon. Not very good, but now let's double the number of sides. So Archimedes adopted the same idea 200 years later, but unlike Antiphon and Bryson, he worked with perimeters rather than areas. Starting with hexagons inside and outside the circle, he then doubled the number of sides of the polygons to 12, 24, 48, and 96. Getting his bounds for polygons with 96 sides as 3 and 10 71st, and 3 and 1 7th, 22 over 7. And this gives pi to two two decimal places. What was happening elsewhere in China around the year 263 Liu Hui also used polygons to approximate pi starting with hexagons and dodecagons he found simple methods for calculating the successive areas and pyramids whenever he doubled the number of sides and for polygons with 192 sides that's twice 96 he obtains bounds of about 3.14 Four more doublings led to polygons with 3,072 sides and to pi as 3.14159. Even more impressively, around the year 500, Zhu Zhongji and his son doubled the number of sides three more times to polygons with over 24,000 sides and obtained pi to six decimal places. They also improved Archimedes' fractional value of 22 over 7 to the more accurate 355 over 113, which also gives pi to six decimal places. And this latter approximation wasn't rediscovered in Europe for another 1,000 years. After this, everyone got in on the game, as the number of size continued to double with with corresponding increases in accuracy, leading eventually to the remarkable Dutchman, Ludolf van Coylen, Whose polygons had over 500 billion sides, giving pi to 20 decimal places. And his upper and lower estimates appear here just below his portrait. But not content with this, he then used polygons with 2 to the power 62 sides to find pi to 35 decimal places. Proud of his results, he asked for this latter value to appear on his tombstone in Leiden, and for many years pi was known in Germany as the Ludolfian number. A new and highly productive method for estimating pi, which was used extensively throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, involved the, the inverse tangent function, usually written as tan to the minus 1x or arc tan x. Now, this, next spec, this next bit gets a little technical, Uh, but hang in there, it won't last long. In particular, I'll use radian measure for angles where pi represents 180 degrees. Well, if y is is tan x, uh, then x is tan to the minus 1y. For example, tan of pi... So tan of theta from the triangle is a over b, theta is tan to the minus 1a over b. Um, so in particular, tan of pi by four—that's tan forty-five degrees—is one. So tan to the minus one of one is pi over four. And tan of pi over six—that's tan thirty—is one over three, one, one over root three. So tan to the minus one of one over root three is pi over six. You're just turning things around. Well, we can combine different values of tan to the minus one. For example, when you add tan to the minus one a half, tan to the minus one a third you get pi over 4, that's 45 degrees. And you can see this from the picture on the left. And you can also prove it by simple geometry. And in general, we can combine any two inverse tangents by using the formula down below. Now, some of you will know, uh, many functions can be written as infinite series. For example, we can write tan to the minus 1x as the infinite series shown here with only odd powers of x, x, x cubed, x to the fifth, and with odd numbers as denominators, 1, 3, 5, 7. This result was already known in 15th century India, but it's usually named after the Scotsman James Gregory, shown here, who rediscovered it 300 years later. If we now let x equals 1, we get a series expression for pi over 4, a result also known in India, but usually credited to Leibniz. This result, pi over 4, is 1 minus a third plus a fifth minus a seventh and so on. This is one of the most remarkable results in the whole of mathematics. By simply adding and subtracting numbers of the form 1 over n, we get a result involving the circle number pi. What have circles got to do with it? Unfortunately, this series converges so slowly that we cannot use it to find pi in practice. For example, if you compute the first 300 terms of the series, you get pi to only two decimal places. And if you want five places, you have to calculate the first half a million terms. But we can use Gregory's series to estimate pi if we substitute values either other than one. Do you remember that tan to the minus one and a half and tan to the minus one third add up to pi over four? So we can substitute x as a half and x is a third into the series for tan x giving the two series below. And because of the increasing powers of 2 and 3 in the denominators, these converge much faster, giving good estimates for pi. Indeed, in 1861, a gentleman from from Potsdam used these very series to find pi to 261 decimal places. Are there other tantal minus 1 results where the series converge even faster? In 1706, the Englishman John Machin, later, incidentally, Gresham Professor, of, uh, Gresham Professor of Astronomy for many years, used the addition formula to prove that pi is 16 times 10 to the minus 1 minus 4 times 10 to the minus 1 1 over 239. I don't worry about how he got it, but he just used that formula over and over again. And then he wrote out the 2 10 to the minus 1 series shown here. Now, these series converge rapidly because of the powers of 5 and 239 in the denominators. For example, if you only take three terms, you already get the value 3.14. Another advantage is that 5 is an easy number to divide by, so that Machin was able to calculate pi by hand to 100 decimal places a great improvement on anything that went before. 1706 was a good year for pi. As well as Machin's result, a Welsh maths teacher called William Jones wrote a new introduction to the mathematics in which he introduced for the first time the symbol pi for measuring circles. Here are two act- extracts from the book. Above, you can see Machin's series, and on the line below it, is the first ever appearance of pi. That's the first time pi ever appeared. And below, in the lower uh, frame, is Machin's value for pi in full, given there, uh, described as true to above a hundred places, as computed by the accurate and ready pen of the truly ingenious. Mr. John Machin. No wonder he became a Gresham (laughs) professor. Such results can be used to obtain many different values for pi. And most notorious of all was the one obtained by William Shanks, who in 1873 used Machin's formula to calculate pi to an impressive 707 decimal places. These were later inscribed in a ceiling frieze in the pie room of the Palace of Discovery in, in Paris, where they can still be seen. Unfortunately for him and for the palace, it was later found that only the first 527 of these decimal places are correct. <laughs> Let's now look at a very different way uh, to find Pi. In 1777, the Comte de Buffon described an experiment for estimating it. Suppose you throw a large number of needles or matchsticks of length L onto a grid of parallel lines at a distance d apart and record the proportion of needles that cross a line. It's not difficult to show that this proportion is 2 over pi times L over d, from which we can calculate a value for pi. For example, here l over d is four over five, and exactly five of the ten needles cross lines. If you do the calculations, you'll find that this gives pi is three over two, three point two, which isn't too bad for only ten needles. Incidentally, in 1901, uh, an, an Italian mathematician called Mario Lazzarini uh, carried out such an experiment in which l over d was five over six performing 3,408 trials and claiming 1,808 crossings. This gave pi is 355 over 113, which, as we've seen, is correct to six decimal places. He was lucky. If just one needle had landed differently, his result would have been correct to only two decimal places. (laughs) In 1897, a bizarre event took place in the American state of Indiana, where the House of Representatives unanimously passed a bill introducing a new mathematical truth. This House bill attempted to legislate an incorrect value for pi provided by a local physician, who would then allow the the state to use his value freely, but would expect royalties from anyone out of state who used it. A bill for an act introducing a new mathematical truth and offered as a contribution to education to be used only in the state of Indiana, free of cost, by paying any royalties, whatever, on the same. According to the proposer, the ratio of the diameter and circumference is of 5 fourths to 4, which gives as 3.2. For some reason, the bill was then passed on to the House Committee on Swamp Lands, who in turn passed it on to the Committee of Education. It has been found that a circular area is to the quadrant of the circumference as the area of the equilateral rec- rectangle is to the square on one side. Well, this makes little sense. But even so, it proceeded to the Committee on Temperance, who recommended its passage, not knowing any better. Fortunately, a mathematician from, from Purdue University happened to be visit the State House on the very day when the bill was about to be finally ratified, and he persuaded the senators to stop it just in time. As far as we know, it's still with the Committee on Temperance. (laughs) The 20th century saw a number of discoveries about pi, many of them completely bizarre. Here are three of them I'll just mention briefly. In 1914, the Indian mathematician Ramanujan found several remarkable exact formulas for 1 over pi, including this one, an infinite series in which strange numbers such as 1,103 and 26,390 seem to appear from nowhere. Such series converge extremely rapidly and form the basis of some of today's fastest algorithms for calculating pi. And many years later, in 1989, David and Gregory Chunovsky of New York uh, produced a similar but even more complicated uh, result with even larger numbers, as you can see. My third example is simpler, but it caused much surprise. Its importance is that if we work in base 16 rather than in base 10, we can calculate each digit of pi one at a time without having to recalculate all the preceding digits first. I'd like to end my discussion of pi with a simple puzzle that appeared in 1702 in a book on Euclid's elements by the Cambridge mathematician William Whiston. If you haven't seen it before, you may find its answer surprising. The circumference of the Earth is about 25,000 miles, or 132 million feet. Assuming the Earth to be a perfect sphere, supposing we tie a piece of string of this great length tightly around it. Don't do this at home. We then extend this string by about just 6 feet, 2 pi feet, and prop it up equally all around the earth. How high above the ground is the string? Most people think the resulting gap must be extremely small, perhaps a tiny fraction of an inch. But the answer is one foot. And in fact, you get the same answer whether you tie the string around the earth, a tennis ball, or any other sphere. For if the sphere has radius r feet, then the original string has length 2 pi r. When we extend it by 2 pi feet, the new circumference is 2 pi r plus 2 pi, which is 2 pi times r plus 1. So the new radius is r plus 1, one foot more than before. Isn't that nice? Let's now move on to our next number, the exponential number E, 2.71828, etc. Here we're concerned with how quickly things grow. We often use the phrase exponential growth to indicate something that grows very fast. But how fast is this? We note first that, like pi, the decimal expansion of E goes on forever. The letter E first appeared in print in 1736. In, in my book, Mechanica, a book on the mathematics of motion. And here it is in the penultimate line uh, where E denotes the number whose hyperbolic logarithm is 1. That's the first appearance of E. To indicate what we mean by exponential growth, here's a, here's a story about the invention of the game of chess. Chess. The wealthy king of a certain country was so impressed by this new game that he offered the wise man who invented it any reward he wished, to which the wise man replied, my prize is for you to give me one grain of wheat for the first square of the chessboard, two grains for the second square, four grains for the third square, and so on, doubling the number of grains on each successive square until the chessboard is filled. The king was amazed to be asked for such a a tiny reward, or so he believed until his treasurers calculated the total number of grains of wheat. You can see how the number is growing quite fast. And the total number of grains of wheat works out at 2 to the power 64 minus 1. That's enough wheat to form a pile the size of Mount Everest. Placed end to end, the grains would reach the nearest star, Alpha Centauri, Centauri, and back again. Let's see how quickly other sequences can grow. A very simple form of growth is linear growth, as in the counting numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Somewhat somewhat quicker is the way the perfect squares n squared grow, 1, 4, 9, 16, 25. And even faster is that of the cube n N cubed. And these are all examples of polynomial growth because they involve, involve powers of n. But alternatively we could look at powers of 2 or of any other number. As we saw in our chessboard story the sequence 2 to the n of powers of 2 starts off fairly slowly but soon gathers pace because each successive term is twice the previous one. And the sequence 3 to the n 3 to the n of powers of 3 grows even more quickly. These are examples of exponential growth where n appears as the exponent. To compare these types of growth, let's calculate the running times of some polynomials and exponentials when n is 10, 30, and 50 for a computer performing a million operations per second. For polynomial growth, such as n cubed, such a computer would take about 1 eighth of a second uh, when n is 50. But exponential growth, such as 2 to the n, is much greater, as we've seen. When n is 50, the computer would take over 35 years and would be vastly greater than this, billions of years, for 3 to the n. So in the long run, exponential growth tends to exceed polynomial growth, often by a huge margin. Algorithms that run in polynomial time are generally thought to be efficient, whereas those that run in exponential time normally take much longer to implement and are regarded as inefficient. Returning to E, what exactly is this number and how did it arise? In 1683, the Swiss mathematician Jacob Bernoulli was calculating compound interest. Given a sum of money to invest at a given rate of interest, how, how does it grow? And the answer depends on how often we calculate the interest. How much is earned if we calculate it once a year, or twice a year, or every month, or every week, or every day, or even Continuously. As an example, to keep the calculation simple, let's see what happens if we invest one pound at the unlikely annual rate of 100%. After one year, our pound has doubled to two pounds. But if we calculate the interest twice a year, that is 50% each time, then after six months, our one pound has been multiplied by one and a half to give one pound fifty. And after a year, that amount is multiplied by another one and a half. To give two pounds twenty-five, which is a bit more than before. Now let's calculate the interest every three months. Uh, then there are four periods, and after each one, the amounts multiply by one and a quarter. First to one pound twenty-five, then to about one pound fifty-six, then one ninety-five, and then by the end of the year to about two point two pounds 44 which is one pound times one and a quarter to the power of four. Notice that these final amounts are increasing. So as the periods get shorter, what happens to them? Do they increase without bound? Or do they settle down to a limiting value? Well, the results are shown in this table here to five decimal places. And to find them, notice that if the year is divided into n periods, then after each period, the amount is multiplied by 1 plus 1 over n. So the amount at the end of the year is 1 plus 1 over n to the n. We also see from this table, the bottom row, that as n increases, these numbers tend to a limiting value that corresponds to when the interest is calculated continuously. And this limiting amount is 2.71828, is our exponential number e. Now, the greatest advances in understanding exponentials were made in the early 18th century. After Bernoulli, the main figure in the story was myself. Who investigated the number e and the related exponential function e to the x? And in 1748, my introduction to the analysis of infinites, if I may say so, one of the most important mathematics books ever written, brought together many of my results from earlier works. Here are some of my main findings. We've just seen that e is the limit of the the numbers 1 plus 1 over n to the n as n increases indefinitely. And similarly, we can show that e to the x is the limit of 1 plus x over n to the n for any number x. But as Isaac Newton had already discovered, the number e is also the sum of the infinite series shown here, where the denominators are the factorials. 1 factorial is 1, 2 factorial is 2 times 1, 3 factorial is 3 times 2 times 1, or 6 or factorials 24, and so on. And more generally, there's a similar series for e to the x, which converges for all values of x. And in fact, these series converge extremely quickly because the factorials on the bottom increase so rapidly. For example, just the first 10 terms of the series for e already gives the correct value to five decimal places. Well, I discovered all of these things and put them into my introductio. And also on the right... Uh, I've got the interesting fact. Here you can see the graph of y equals e to the x. And one of its most important features is that at each point x, the slope of the graph, the steepness of the graph, is also e to the x. So the slope at any point is the y value. So the curve becomes steeper and steeper as x increases. And that's what we mean by exponential growth. So we'll end our discussion of exponentials by returning to exponential growth. And in 1798, Thomas Malthus wrote his essay on population, where he, where he contrasted the steady li- linear growth of food supplies with the exponential growth in population. He concluded that however one may make cope make hope in the short term, exponential growth would win in the long term and there'd be severe food shortages, a conclusion that was borne out in practice. So how fast does a population grow? A bit of calculus calculus needed here, but it's quite quick. So if n of t is the size of a population at time t, and if the population grows at a fixed rate k proportional to its size, then we have the differential equation dn over dt. That's the slope, is k times n. Which can be solved to give n uh, is n0 times e to the kt, where n0 is the initial population. So you know the initial population, and then it, it rises according to that formula, an example of exponential growth. And in the same way, we can model exponential decay, as, for example, in the decay of radium, or in the cooling of a cup of tea. We come now to the last of our constants before we try to combine them together. This is the imaginary square root of minus 1, which arose back in the 16th century when Cardano one of the Italian mathematicians who first solved cubic equations, was trying to solve a number puzzle. Divide 10 into two parts, whose product is 40. To solve this, he let the two numbers be x and 10 minus x. He didn't actually have algebraic notation, but essentially this is what he did. He let the numbers be x and 10 minus x, so they add up to 10. And also x times 10 minus x is 40. 40. Solving this quadratic equation, he found the solution to be 5 plus the square root of minus 15 and 5 minus the square root of minus 15, which seemed meaningless. Commenting that, nevertheless, we will operate putting aside the mental tortures involved, he checked that the answers worked. And he, but he was led to complain that so progresses arith- arithmetic subtlety, the end of which is r- as refined as it is useless. Is it useless? Let's see. Well, trying to take the square root of a negative number doesn't seem to make sense. After all, 1 times 1 is 1, and minus 1 times minus 1 is 1. And as the Victorian Augustus de Morgan remarked 300 years later, we have shown the symbol square root of minus a to be void of meaning or rather self-contradictory and absurd. While his contemporary, the astronomer George Airy, commented... I have not the smallest confidence in any result which is essentially obtained by the use of imaginary symbols. However, Leibniz was more encouraging, claiming that the imaginary numbers are a wonderful flight of God's spirit. They are almost an amphibium between being and not being. Uh, To my shame, even I, who came to use them so effectively, criticized them. Well, for many purposes, our ordinary numbers are enough. But suppose we now agree to allow this mysterious object called the square root of minus 1, or i, as I named it. We can then form many more numbers, such as 1 plus 3i and 2 plus i. Ignoring for the moment what these actually mean, we can carry out simple calculations with them. Adding is straightforward. We just add the bits without the i, a plus c, and the bits with i separately. And so it's multiplying, as long as we remember to replace i squared, wherever it appears, by minus 1. We can also represent these numbers geometrically. This was first done by Caspar Vessel of Norway, and later by Gauss and by Jean-Robert Argon, or Argand. It's often called the Gaussian plane, or Argand diagram, but neither name is historically correct. One should really call it the complex plane. So we re- represent each complex number a plus bi by the point with coordinates a, b. And so the first picture here shows four points, such as 1 plus 2i and 3 plus i so represented. We can then add two complex numbers together by using the parallelogram rule on the right. And so as before, 1 plus 3i plus 2 plus i is the other end of the parallelogram, 3 plus 4i. To multiply by i, we simply rotate through 90 degrees. And as a telephone operator said to me the other day, the number you have dialed is purely imaginary. Please rotate your phone through 90 degrees and try again. (laughs) Doing this again, we're multiplying by i squared, or minus 1. And that's just a rotation through 180 degrees. As we've seen, there was much suspicion in Victorian times about these imaginary numbers. The Irish mathematician and astronomer William Rowan Hamilton largely ended this suspicion by defining the complex numbers as pairs AB of real numbers, pairs, which combine together according to the particular rule shown here. Now, we've just seen that complex numbers can be represented in the plane, so a natural question is, can we extend the idea to three dimensions with the numbers of the form a plus bi plus cj, where i squared and j squared are both minus 1. And it turns out that addition is still okay. But multiplication isn't, because some of the terms have i times j, and it's not cl- at all clear what that should be. Hamilton tried all sorts of possibilities, and nothing worked. Everything failed, and as he later wrote to his son Archibald, Every morning on my coming down to breakfast, your brother, William Edwin, and yourself used to ask me, well, Papa, can you multiply triplets? Where to, I was always obliged to reply with a sad shake of the head, no, I can only add and subtract them. They got on then with their cornflakes. Well, after struggling with these triplets for many years, Hamilton had his moment of glory on the 16th of October, 1843, during a walk with his wife along Dublin's Royal Canal, when, as he said, an electric current seemed to close and a spark splashed forth. I pulled out on the spot a pocketbook and made an entry there and then. Nor could I resist the impulse, impulse to cut with a knife on a stone on Broom Bridge, as we passed it, the fundamental formula with the symbols I, J, and K, namely i I squared is minus 1, as is j squared and k squared, and as is i, j, k. And these are the quaternions with four terms, a plus bi plus cj plus dk. Here, i squared, j squared, and k squared are all minus 1, but multiplication is no longer commutative. Now, our multiplication is commutative. You can do it either way around. 3 times 4 is the same as 4 times 3. But here... uh, That doesn't work. i times j is minus j times i. jk is minus kj. ki is minus ik. It's a completely different number system. Anyway, you can now multiply any two quaternions as long as you stick to these rules. Well, now we've got our five constants. Let's return to my equation and my identity. And For the last few minutes, uh, let's talk about that. So recall that my identity connects the exponential function, which goes shooting off to infinity, with the functions cosine and sine, which oscillate between 1 and minus 1, as you can see at the top. To find this connection, uh, as some of you will know, these functions can all be expanded as infinite series, which are valid for all values of x. So here you can see the series for e to the x, cos x, and sine x. What happens if we now allow ourselves to introduce the complex number i, the square root of minus 1, as i did in 1737? So you take the above series for e to the x and replace x everywhere by ix, as shown here. So e to the x is 1 plus ix over 1 factorial plus ix all squared over 2 factorial plus ix all cubed over 3 factorial, and so on. But i squared is minus 1, so i cubed is minus i, i to the fourth is, is 1, and so on. And if you sort it all out and collect terms, you, what you get is a series for cosine plus i times the series for sine x. That is, e to the ix is cos x plus i sine x, which is my identity, one of the most remarkable equations in the whole of mathematics, beautifully connecting these seemingly unrelated functions all thanks to complex numbers. I actually gave more than one proof of my identity. Here's part of a different approach. Uh, This is from the Introductio that I showed earlier. And here I made use of so-called infinitesimals. So this is the proof that appeared in in the Introductio in 1748. My identity appears in the penultimate line as e to the v times the square root of minus 1, that's eiv, is cos v plus square root of minus 1 times sine v. This is the first appearance of my identity. As I myself commented at the time, from these equations we can understand how complex exponentials can be expressed by real sines and cosines. From my identity, e to the ix is cos x plus i sine x, we can deduce my equation. We simply let x is pi, which is the radian form of 180 degrees, Well, cos of pi, cos of 180 is minus 1. Sine of pi, sine of 180 is 0. And so we just get e to the i pi is minus 1, or e to the i pi plus 1 equals 0. And although I certainly made this, 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 this deduction, for some reason I never wrote it down explicitly in any of my published works. I don't know why. Can we illustrate my equation pictorially? In 1959, the English school teacher L.W.H. Hull showed how to do so. Take the power series for e to the x and put x as i pi, giving 1 plus i pi over 1 factorial plus i pi squared over 2 factorial and so on, which simplifies to 1 plus i pi minus pi squared over 2 minus i pi cubed over 6 and so on. He then traced these terms on on the complex plane, as you can see on the right. You start at the point 1 on the right, uh, add i pi, that means go upwards, then you subtract a half pi pi squared uh, and subtract i over 6 pi cubed, uh, add 24 pi to the 4th and so on. And this produces a spiral path which converges eventually to the sum of the series, which is just e to the i pi, which is minus 1. Well, although we call this result Euler's equation, it was nearly discovered a few years earlier by Johann Bernoulli. In 1702, Bernoulli was investigating the area of a sector of a circle of radius a. That's the shaded area on the right between the x-axis and the line from the origin to the point xy. And he found this area he found this area to be the expression you've got there: a squared over 4i times log of x plus i, y over x minus i,y. Well, leaving quite aside what's meant by the logarithm of a complex number, I later observed that when x is 0, this formula simplifies uh, to a squared over 4, 4i times log of minus 1. That log thing. That log term becomes log of minus 1. But the sector, as you can see from the picture, is now a quarter circle with area pi a squared over 4. And so you have the uh, a squared over 4i times log of minus 1 is pi a squared over 4. And if you do some cancelling, you get log of minus 1 is i times pi. That's how you find the log of a negative number. Although I wrote down this last result explicitly, I didn't take exponentials to deduce my equation The form e to the i pi is minus 1. Indeed, I often credited Bernoulli with with discovering this value for log of minus 1. Another near miss uh, arose from the work of the Cambridge mathematician Roger Coates, who worked closely with Isaac Newton on the second edition of the Principia Mathematica and he was the one that's credited with introducing radian measure for angles. (coughs) Around 1712, he was investigating the surface area of an ellipsoid obtained by rotating an ellipse around an axis. The details are complicated, but he managed to find two mathematical expressions for the area, one involving logarithms and the other involving trigonometry, and both involving an angle phi. He first proved that the surface area is a certain multiple of log of cos phi plus i sine phi. And in a different way, he proved it to be the same multiple of i i phi. And equating these results gives the result you have here, which connects logarithms with the trigonometric functions. If he'd taken exponential, he'd have found my identity in the form e to the i phi is cos phi plus i sine phi. But he didn't another near miss. So to end with, what should we call the equation e to the i pi plus 1 equals 0? We've just seen how it follows from results of Johann Bernoulli and Roger Coates, but that neither of them seems to have done so. Even I never wrote it down explicitly, though I certainly realize that it follows immediately from my identity e to the ix as cos x plus i sine x. In fact, we don't know who first stated the e- equation explicitly, though there's an early appearance in a French journal of 1813 to 14. But almost everybody nowadays attributes the result to me, so we're surely justified in naming it Euler's equation to honour the achievements of myself, who's been called a truly great mathematical pioneer, a word that, (laughs) if I say modestly, describes me so well and which appropriately includes among its letters our five constants, pi, i, 0, 1, and e. Thank you very much.